There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deegan. On the show today, a special deep dive interview with Conservative MP and former Culture Minister John Whittingdale. Uh, We talk about the government's next up broadcasting white paper, including the controversial campaign to privatise Channel 4. Also on the agenda, after the BBC's latest cuts, we look at what other changes may be ahead as the government kicks off its mid-charter review, plus a rundown of the media policy in the pipeline, all set to shape the UK media industry in the coming years. And that's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. As the Queen's Jubilee weekend is taking place this week, we've got a special edition of the show for you, taking stock of the future of the UK media landscape, reflecting on several of the big debates and policy matters impacting media owners, big and small. Joining me on the show is the Right Honourable John Whittingdale MP. John, you've recently celebrated 30 years of being a Member of Parliament. Uh, First of all, congratulations. But quite a lot of that time's been involved in the media or media policy. What led you to that area? Well, you're right that actually almost my entire time in Parliament, I have focused on it right back to 1996 when I first wrote a pamphlet called New Policies for the Media, which actually, given that it's now, what, 26 years old, um, stands up reasonably well. But the reasons were several. Uh, firstly, I have a great love of the media, particularly television, music, film, etc. I've spent many happy hours watching or listening. But on top of that, I could see that it was an area where, even back in the sort of late 90s, you, you had a taste of what was to come with the digital revolution. And the fact that we were going to move away from a very limited number of television channels, a very clunky sort of recording formats, and the internet was in its infancy, but clearly was going to revolutionise things and to throw up a lot of challenges for policy makers. So I thought it would be a very interesting area to get involved in. And of course, it's also highly political. The media are very powerful. Politicians spend a great deal of time worrying about ownership, content, etc. So it was an area which I enjoyed, I was interested in, a lot was happening, and it was very political. Looking at your sort of background before you went into Parliament, you obviously worked a lot with Conservative Central Office. Had your boss's work influenced some of your thoughts as well? Um, A bit. I mean, I was a special advisor in what was then called the Department of Trade and Industry, which was a huge department, but I was a bit involved in telecoms and the sort of beginnings of the digital revolution. I can remember the 
reluctance of BT to abandon dial-up. You, I mean, for, you're probably too young to remember the sort of extraordinary noises that happened every time you wanted to go online, and you were lucky if you got half a megabit, in fact, considerably less. So there was some interest politically there, but also, of course, I then went on, I worked for Margaret Thatcher. She had strong views about the media, as she was quite critical sometimes. It was very plain that it was going to be politically a big issue always. And as I say, a lot was also happening around it. And obviously she created Channel 4, which is obviously in the news at the moment, um, which has done a huge amount of good for the TV sector as a whole. But obviously we're in a, a slightly new world now. Well, you have to remember when Channel 4 was created, the world was very different. It was, as the, as the name suggests, the fourth TV channel. There were only two BBC and one ITV channel in existence. And also the independent production sector in Britain didn't exist. So Channel 4 was created firstly to provide an alternative kind of programming, which you couldn't find anywhere else, and also to uh, encourage the growth of the independent production sector because Channel 4 obviously didn't make programmes itself. You know, you move on what, 30 years, and it is completely different. Um, whereas now, I mean, it's now more than 30 years, it's 40, but there is a huge range of choice. The two objectives which Channel 4 was set up to deliver, I think it has done very successfully. Now, Channel 4, my concern, that Channel 4 is a model which was wholly dependent on advertising, has no other form of income. And the advertising market is fragmenting, firstly, because more and more is moving online. The media are developing digital outlets with advertising, but you know Google and Facebook and the others are taking a huge chunk of that advertising market. The market is also splintering so that you've got many more choices available, which means inevitably audience size is gonna fall. Potentially, we have the possibility of advertising coming onto Netflix, onto Disney. So it means that if you're an advertiser, the choice you have of where to place your ads is all the greater. And all of that means the likelihood is that the cost will uh, decline, or at least certainly the revenue available to Channel 4. And whilst Channel 4 is doing reasonably well at the moment, the government has a responsibility to look to the future. And my concern, and it's one which the department currently has articulated, is that in the longer term, this model is going to come under increasing pressure. There will be calls for government intervention. And actually, if we act now, we can sustain Channel 4 by giving it private ownership, which will give it access to capital, to invest and to grow. And therefore, if you like, by looking at privatisation now, it's a preemptive measure to avoid what I suspect are inevitably going to be challenges in the future if it remains as a publicly owned and solely advertising dependent channel. But you say that you know, Channel 4 is doing particularly well at the moment. It does well in advertising. It's strong in the market. It represents other channels too. It's profitable. It continues to be successful and deliver its public purposes. I mean, the government's making a guess that it won't be in a great place in the advertising market in 10 years time. But I mean, if you spoke to people at Channel 4 or other media companies and media agencies, they wouldn't necessarily agree with that analysis. Some do, some don't. I mean, a lot of people would agree with it. Who? Who, who would agree? Michael, Michael Grade, who is one of the most experienced people in broadcasting that I know, is very strongly supportive. 
Enders, who are an extremely professional media analysts company, also believe that now is the right time to look at privatisation. So there are a number of people. You know, the House of Lords Communications Committee report said that they weren't necessarily persuaded, but they did see that there were arguments in favour and that it was right to look at those things now. So, I mean, quite a number of people um, have said that they think it's the right thing to No current advertising agencies agree with the, the privatisation. So the people actually buy advertising now and are likely to in five to ten years' time, they're all uh, pushing for the status quo. Don't they know what they're talking about? Well, no, I mean, I think their concerns relate in particular to who might own Channel 4. I mean, obviously, they have anxieties around competition and you know, the ad sales business, if it were to become in the grip of a smaller number of players, if that is something which raises competition issues. I, I mean, at the moment, there is a vast range of possible owners. I think, depending on who emerges, it might uh, raise competition concerns, in which case, I would expect for the Competition and Markets Authority to look at it. So, I mean, I've listened to the advertising agencies and they're not saying they're completely against Channel 4 privatisation. What they are saying is that they are anxious about the consequences should the sales business of Channel 4, for instance, become under the control of one of the other sales businesses, in other words, for the market to diminish. So that, that is a, a legitimate concern, which we would need to look at through the competition authority. I mean, that's that's the kind of the nub of the issue, isn't it? It's like whether the changes to Channel 4 kind of cook the goose that's laying the golden eggs. You know, at the moment, it's profitable, it delivers public value. If it is acquired by an existing operator, I mean, that's going to be a consolidation play that's likely to reduce ownership in the marketplace. It would be surprising for someone new to come into the market, wouldn't it? Like, it's likely to go to an existing TV player. I I mean, I'm not going to prejudge any of it. I do know there are a wide range of different businesses that may well be interested. You could well have an existing UK broadcaster. You could have an overseas broadcaster. You could have somebody who is not in the broadcasting business at the moment. And you know, the, the government, when we get to that point, will need to look at them. The only thing I'd also say is, I mean, Channel 4, like all the media companies, came under huge pressure during the COVID pandemic. I was very involved in trying to support media companies at a time when advertising literally dropped through the floor because of the COVID pandemic. What Channel 4 did, which was sensible, was to dramatically cut their costs. They slashed their programme budget by, I think, about £140 million. They then suffered a drop in advertising revenue of, I think, around £90 million. I would need to check the precise figures, but it's that kind of order. So the fact that they emerged profitable was because they cut costs by more than their revenue fell, which you can say was good management. But it was a very exceptional period. Now, since then, with the bounce back following the end of COVID, the advertising market, I chaired a session discussing this two weeks ago, has recovered extremely strongly. I mean, more than I think uh, most people expected. So advertising is healthy, but the concern is not about you know, whether Channel 4 is going to remain profitable this year, next year, or even one after. It is about the long-term trends where you are going to get more and more providers of content 
You know, we've already got streaming services like Netflix, like Amazon, like Disney, like Apple. We've got more coming along. And as I say, if Netflix and Disney decide that they are going to take advertising and they're suggesting they will, then again, that means that the amount of advertising time available is going to hugely increase, which is bound to have a downward effect on the amount that advertisers have to pay. But isn't it very easy for the government to say that it's going to be terrible for the channel, therefore we, we want to do something? I mean, I'm not saying it's entirely driven by this, but partly this is ideological, isn't it? You know, some of the people in your party feel that Channel 4 has been against them and have been arguing strongly for, for a change. Some people take a, a more traditional conservative view of it being a success. It no longer needs to be in the public purse. There is an element of that in that I am a conservative. I believe in the private sector and the market. I look at the privatisations that conservative governments have carried out over the last sort of 20 years and generally, in my view, those businesses have performed much better in the private sector than they did when they were in the public sector. I am, I suppose you can call it ideological, but I do take the view that the state needs to own things that the state has to own. But if a business will survive and probably do much better in the private sector, that in itself is a reason for privatising it. And I think Channel 4 falls into that category. But it is in a unique position, isn't it? You know, it doesn't really cost the government any money. It generates public value. It's pretty well liked in the response to the DCMS consultation, overwhelming support, even if you sort of take out the, the kind of campaigning group of responses. But well, no, we're used to politically organised responses. But even, even if you remove that, sort of 80 plus percent of responses were supportive of Channel 4. Isn't there an issue that, you know, me as a, a member of the public, there's not a lot of value for me with Channel 4 going into the private sector or being owned by Viacom or Sky or, or ITV? Uh, I mean, one of the things which I hope you'll see is much better programmes, because If you have an owner that has the resources to invest in programme content, and and you will know that the costs of TV production are rising very, very rapidly, and Channel 4 is a minnow, and it it will struggle to raise the resources to make very high-quality programme. I would have to say that, you know, with few exceptions, and and there are a few really excellent Channel 4 programmes, but an awful lot of it... I find it slightly difficult to see how it meets the definition of public service broadcasting. There's a lot of American import over a lot of sort of late night shows. Every now and again, it comes up with a nugget and is rightly praised for it. And Channel 4 News, I think, is an important contributor. But you see, I think that you can preserve the best things about Channel 4 and hopefully support them with more investment from the private sector um, and therefore as a result I think you and anybody else who watches Channel 4 will benefit. But you could say that about Channel 5 you know Channel 5 bought a public broadcaster off of Daily Express Group. Channel 5 actually is an excellent example of how a channel can benefit from a benign owner that is prepared to invest and without wishing to be too rude about the previous owners, frankly, Channel 5 wasn't very good. It has been transformed and Viacom have invested. And in content, which a lot of people would think was peculiarly British, you know, a Yorkshire farmer, etc. I mean, these are programmes which know, a lot of people would see as British programmes. They've done a very good job of providing distinctive programming. 
not entirely sure it provides brilliantly distinctive programming. I think it's been more successful than, than it has been in the past. So ratings are still lower than Channel 4, even when you combine MTV, Nickelodeon, Comedy Central, other Viacom properties. It punches below what, what Channel 4 does in the ad market as it represents its own channels and others. It's not as if the introduction of it has suddenly transformed that as a, as a network. I'm not entirely convinced that if someone swooped in and did the same thing for Channel 4, it would do that. Channel 4 has a remit requiring it to be edgy and to um, appeal to audiences that aren't catered for. And in particular, Channel 4 has been quite good at targeting younger audiences. Now, Channel 5 actually has been quite successful at targeting audiences, not exclusively, but actually older audiences. I used to have in government, you know, regular conversations with the chief executive of Channel 5, just as I did with all the other broadcasters and you know channel 5 is doing well and viacom certainly has made a lot of investment and viacom has not been that long in charge of channel 5 and so you know it takes time if you invest in a channel before you see the benefits of it but i think those are coming through you obviously had the chance to privatize channel 4 in in an early incarnation um, of the government's media policy. And that was something you didn't choose to go forward with. Why not then, but why now? Is it there's a great Tory majority and you could push these things through now? Isn't it just easier? That is one of the reasons in that I think that the government, when I say Crib State in 2015-16, could see the arguments. They weren't as widely accepted, and I take your point that there's still a lot of opposition, but some of those who previously were opposed have now come round and are supporting privatisation. It is a political process. It requires legislation to be approved by both houses of Parliament. I would point firstly at the fact that back in 2015-16, the government had a very small majority in Parliament and there was a lot of other highly controversial legislation going through. And David Cameron said to me, he said, you know, I'm I, I could do without another battle on my hands. And then there was the House of Lords. And the House of Lords were very strongly opposed. And I think it might be interesting for you to look at the two reports produced by the House of Lords Communications Committee. As I say, in 2015-16, they produced a very hostile report. I mean, it was totally opposed. The most recent House of Lords report is much more objective. It, it's not totally in support, but nor is it totally rejecting. And I, actually, I think it raises some good points, which I'm sure the government will want to address. I mean, you put together your own white paper at that time, and obviously the, a new one has just come out. What's it like trying to helm that? Obviously, everyone's got a point of view on, on what should go in a, a, a broadcasting bill. How, how do you whittle it down to, to something that works? Well, that's a good question. And it's, it's a multi-stage process because the first thing you'd have to do is develop a white paper in your own department. And we had a lot of competing priorities. So what emerged from the white paper was predominantly, I mean, obviously the biggest issue is Channel 4, but we have been subject to lobbying from particularly ITV for a very long time around prominence. ITV isn't alone in arguing for prominence, but ITV for them, you know, particularly with the franchise coming up but relatively soon for renewal, prominence is a very big issue. And the government has said it would do something about prominence for years now. It just hadn't been able to do it. So that was a priority. There was then a view, particularly which the last Secretary of State held, that the streaming services were not subject to any kind of regulation as opposed to the quite detailed regulation on the public service broadcasters so that there needed to be minimum standards imposed on the VOD platforms. So that was a part of the white paper. 
And then there was another part which I was keen on, but which, due to the kinds of pressure you're describing, fell out. And that was around similar prominence for radio. The government produced an audio review quite recently, which flagged up that potentially the public service broadcasters are going to find that they may not have the same prominence on smart TV sets unless we legislate to require them to do so. That same challenge could happen on radio because more and more people are listening to radio using smart speakers and radio sector want to have the same kind of prominence requirements. That's something the government agreed was desirable, but it didn't make it into the white paper. I think there will be pressure to try and include it. But I also know that the government, and I'm talking about the government as a whole, DCMS alone has four, arguably five, bills in the Queen's speech. And there are a lot of other very important bills. And you go through a process where you have to compete against other departments for space. And so the pressure is always, well, do you really need to do that? Can't you achieve that either by different means, maybe secondary legislation, or could it it not wait until another date? So I think to get a media bill and have included in it as much as they have is actually quite an achievement by the government. And the government, of course, has to make it through the whole year as well to get some of those bills on, on the table too. Events can influence a lot of things, can't they? Oh, well, I mean, politics, you know, events, dear boy, as Harold Macmillan once famously said a long time ago, well, now, everything is unpredictable in politics. But one thing I would say is that, you know, the government still has a majority in the House of Commons of 80 or so, and therefore the chances of the government falling early, as happened, for instance, with Theresa May, who lost her majority, I think are very slim. Now, you know, obviously there's a lot of controversy. I think the chances are the Prime Minister will probably continue in office. But even if the Prime Minister didn't continue, that doesn't mean the Conservative government doesn't continue. And, you know, I would expect that the, you know, the government will want to continue with the media bill, come what may. So, yeah, I mean, you can never be certain of any of these things. But I think the chances are it will go through because I think we're probably still possibly even two years away from a general election. I mean, talking about that point about radio, you're absolutely right. One of the issues is uh, how people will discover public radio or licensed radio, both commercial community and traditional public service. I mean, that is part of the the modern challenge, isn't it, with new platforms of trying to get British-made content on those home screens if broadcasters get sort of disaggregated that they can still reach audiences. I think there was some reference in the white paper to we will have some discussions about audio. Do you think there is a chance for those um, prominence rules to shift for radio as the bill is codified? Well, I would hope so. Indeed, I may try and introduce them myself because I think it is important. I quite understand that, you know, there is huge pressure on legislative time, and it may be that that's why it wasn't included. But I talked to the radio centre, for instance, that represents the commercial radio broadcasters, and they are pressing very hard for it to be included, even though, you know, we haven't seen the bill yet. Mm. You've seen the white paper, but the bill is uh, obviously still to be published, and then bills can be amended, they can be added to as they go through Parliament. So, well, no, I'm still a long way to go. Again, it's, it's, I mean, smart speakers are amazing. Previously, if I wanted to listen to my community radio station in my constituency, I had to be sitting in my house in Essex. Whereas now, I can be in London, or I could be in, I don't know, you know, the other side of the world, and I could say to my smart speaker, 
play my local community stations. That's a huge asset, but it does mean that fighting through the noise and remaining visible is a greater challenge. Well, John, there's lots more to talk about, uh, including the BBC, and we'll do that after this break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And he stuck around. MP John Whittingdale still here. Lots more to cover. Tim Davey made some announcements uh, last week about paving the way to a, a digital future. Did you catch his comments on the BBC's changes? Do you think uh, his views and his aims are, are pretty good for the next few years? Well, I mean, I, I had many conversations with Tim as we were discussing the level of the licence fee settlement. And in actual fact, the settlement that the government announced was pretty much the one which... I and Oliver Dowden have been talking to Tim about, you know, last year. So he's had plenty of warning. But he was also very uh, clear that it would be quite challenging for the BBC, particularly with a two-year freeze at a time when production costs are going up. Uh, And he said he would need to make difficult decisions. I think the counter to that is that, you know, we live in times when the cost of living is a real issue for many people and to expect them to pay more for the TV license was unreasonable. I think the decision was the correct one, but I accept that the BBC will have to make savings. How they find the savings is entirely for the BBC. The decisions to make some channels solely digital is perhaps a reflection of a trend we're uh, going in in any case, although obviously it's important that the BBC remains as a linear broadcaster in its main services for as long as people want to watch linear TV. I know whilst I might have one or two arguments over precisely how they're doing so, in the main I accept that that is the necessity and Tim has probably 
identified the right areas in which savings can be made. You're a big music fan. Are you going to miss all that uh, music programming on a linear BBC4? Well, I mean, hey, I can, well, you know, I'm, I'm also a regular viewer on of digital stations and I play Amaret, so I mean, I'm sure I can still find it. And, you know, even as a music fan, it is remarkable how many different services there are out there. I mean, Sky Arts, for instance, which is not a public service broadcaster, but it is nevertheless now free to air and offers a range of content, which, you know, I think is comparable to any public service channel. So, you know, it's not as if it's going to disappear. Uh, you talked a bit about uh, the license fee and your view being a sort of smaller core license fee for sort of super public service content and then maybe extra for sort of entertainment, comedy, more maybe optional content. Is that still a view that, that you have? In the long term, the license fee is going to be difficult to sustain because you know, there are already generations of younger people saying, I don't watch the BBC. I certainly don't watch linear television. You know, they they watch almost exclusively online video on demand programming. Yeah, I mean, occasionally they might see the BBC, but would they go on paying £160 a year simply on the odd chance that they might want to watch a BBC programme for a number saying no? So I think the government is right to say that the days of the licence fee are numbered. On the other hand... Now, if you want to find alternatives, as I have pointed out many times, subscription is one alternative, but you can only introduce subscription when we have moved towards an entire on-demand IPTV system. As long as you have Freeview, and there are still households that rely on Freeview, you can't have subscription. So there will come a day when Freeview is no longer the main method of distributing television content, and we might even reach the point where it will be switched off. And that's the moment when subscription becomes a realistic possibility. But in my view, it's probably 10 years away. It'd be great to just talk through some of the other bills um, that have been mentioned. First up, I guess we've got the online safety bill, and Nadine Doris posted a rap on TikTok over the weekend explaining the bill. Have you have you jumped on TikTok yet? Have you done any of your own rapping? I haven't, and I have to say, whilst I thought it was brave of Nadine, I'm not going to uh, follow her in that. <laughs> I thought her rhyming was pretty good. She got quite a lot of grief. I thought it went quite well. I'm not entirely sure it's going to reach the right audience. As I say, politicians do need to use whatever medium is most likely to get the message across. And, and I would agree with you, I thought, actually, in terms of delivering what is quite a complicated message in a style suitable for TikTok. She did quite well, but she did also get quite a lot of mockery. I mean, people have been talking about the, an online safety bill for a long time. I mean, sort of as early as 2008, a real focus, but I think before then too. The 2008 was actually a report by the Select Committee when I was the chair of the Select Committee. So yes, I mean, I've been calling for action in this area for, as you say, 14 years. Obviously, it's changed over that time. You know, the report we produced in 2008 identified some harmful content, but it's become a much wider problem. You know, we didn't have Twitter as uh, universal then. Penetration, particularly of smart mobile phones amongst young people, was much lower. As that has increased, you know, I think governments have realised that this is a greater problem. I welcome the fact that a bill has finally appeared. I was quite involved in the early stages of discussion of it. It has tended to grow over time. More and more has been added to it. 
I mean, Ed Vasey came on the show and he described it as a bit of a Christmas tree bill in that everybody's hanging their baubles on it. Is there a danger that it will sort of fall apart or won't do its job because it, it's sort of weighed down by all of these expectations? Well, I mean, you're right that various measures were added to it. For instance, originally it was only going to be about harmful content, which was defined as that which was psychologically damaging, um, inciting violence, all that sort of thing. The government came under a lot of pressure to include fraud. Now, fraud is a very serious issue, but arguably that's an economic crime and it's extending the bill into an area which wasn't originally intended to cover, but it now will cover fraud. Um, It's also going to have provisions for age verification for the hardcore pornography sites. That, again, is, is a different aspect to what was originally intended. So it has tended to grow. One of the things that very often happens as Bill goes through Parliament is that they grow still further because particularly in the House of Lords, where the government doesn't have a majority, you know, the Lords quite often tack things onto it. Um, and I do think that's a danger because you know, every time you tack something onto the bill, it's in another obligation, another potential burden on the platforms and the government at the same time as rightly wanting to act against harmful content but also has an ambition to grow the technology sector to make the UK a very attractive place to invest if you are a digital technology company and you need to make sure that you're not creating an environment which they see as hostile and drive them to go elsewhere. Well, another bill that's sort of connected to that is the data reform bill. It's a kind of a complex one. It's basically creating a sort of task force to look at the particularly the large companies and be focused on the large companies. The thing to remember about data is that the entire of the UK's data protection laws were written in Brussels. They are EU derived laws, either directly through GDPR that applies in British law or through the Data Protection Act, which basically added to the existing framework of GDPR. One of the consequences of Brexit is that we are now able to go back and look at GDPR and say, is this working properly? Is it necessary in some areas? Is it possibly creating burdens on particularly small firms which aren't necessary? And can we make it easier to work with? And that's what the data reform consultation was all about. And the data bill, when it comes forward, in my view, is one of the great opportunities created by Brexit, that we can now frame our data protection laws in a way which continue to provide safeguards and protect people's privacy, for instance, but do try and help firms to take advantage of data. Because some people seem to regard sharing data is a danger, that it's a bad thing that needs to be controlled. Sharing data is one of the great opportunities. And for instance, we wouldn't have been able to get through the COVID pandemic nearly as easily as we did if we hadn't been able to share data. Sharing data is a great benefit to consumers and therefore we do want to make it easier to do it. Isn't there a danger that taking on GDPR regulations is a bit of a a digital version of of bringing back imperial measurements? Pretty much any business that works anywhere, you've got to keep your GDPR regulations up because you've got customers, people who access your servers from all over Europe and further afield. American companies quite often implement GDPR restrictions because it's easier that way. Having a UK-specific data rule or 
cookie rule or any of the litany of things isn't really going to work for people who want to run global businesses. Well, it is if we maintain what's called data adequacy. So at the moment, we are deemed data adequate by the EU because we haven't made any changes yet. So they raised our rules. So it'd be pretty surprising if they said suddenly we were no longer adequate in terms of our data protection. Now, as has been demonstrated by other countries, you can achieve data adequacy without adopting the whole of GDPR. So, for instance, the new information commissioner who I was involved in is selection, John Edwards, he comes from New Zealand. New Zealand is a country that is recognised as data adequate by the EU, but doesn't have GDPR. It has its own system of data protection, but one which delivers the same level of protections. So the goal, if you like, is to make the UK data protection laws easier for business to comply with, to try and encourage data sharing, but while still providing the level of protection, which means we're deemed adequate. And that is a challenge. But, you know, that is what uh, the government is setting out to try and achieve. Well, thanks for your time today. Your data has definitely been adequate. I'm happy to confirm that. I guess you've got an interesting view on this world. You've been a minister, you've, you've chaired select committees. When you look at all these media issues that are facing the government and also facing the country, what's the core issue that they need to nail and do properly, do you think, in this next period? Well, there's a lot of legislative activity. I know we've talked about online safety, we've talked about media bill, we've talked about the data bill. All of these are about trying to bring our laws up to date for what is an incredibly fast-changing environment. And it's going to continue to change. You know, the digital revolution is still only in its infancy, but data AI throws up all sorts of challenges, particularly around data use. We need to try and frame these laws so that they will allow the benefits which will undoubtedly come from these changes to to flow and also to remain up to date. So, you know, that's the immediate priority. And it's going to be quite difficult because, you know, these are complicated areas. I've spent a lot of my political career concentrating on them. But for a lot of my colleagues who haven't spent that amount of time and, you know, MPs sometimes find it quite difficult to wrestle with the uh, complexities of these issues. So, I'm going to be kept busy, I suspect, participating in those debates as we move forward. Thanks for your time today. Much appreciated. Not at all. Thanks. See you soon. And thank you for joining us for this special edition of the Media Podcast. Uh, Remember, we love hearing from you uh, here at the show. You can send us a message through Twitter. Well, there's still time to dive back into our Media Podcast survey. Just go to themediapodcast.com slash survey, themediapodcast.com slash survey. Also, always keen on you signing up to become a patron of the show through our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash mediapod. Maybe you are celebrating the Queen's Jubilee with a beer and podcast on and are in such a good spirit, God save the Queen and all that, you want to donate. Just go to patreon.com slash mediapod. Another thing you can do uh, is sign up to a trial at riverside.fm. That's the software we use to make the show and it's great if you make audio or video with multiple uh, participants, riverside.fm. Head there and use the code mediapod uh, and we'll get a lovely kickback. And if you've dropped in on this show for the first time uh, and think, wow, I'd really like to subscribe to that, well, of course you can. It's free to do in Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. 
just hit that subscribe or follow button. My name is Matt Deegan. The producer was Phoebe Adler-Ryan with support from Matt Hill. It was a Rethink Audio production and I'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.